0: We're continuing in our sermon series. Hope in the midst of a shaken world. And I want to begin today with a question. Where do you turn? Where do you find hope? When everything seems to have been shaken, right to the very core of your beliefs, creating dis-ease, a lack of stability, a real lack of certainty, where do you turn? Now, let me share with you what I believe to be a significant part of the shakeup that we are facing. In January, four million people had been unemployed for six months or more. That's what economists refer to as long-term unemployment. It hasn't happened in the United States at this level since the Great Depression. So what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. The longer that someone is without a job, the harder it is to find a new one. There's actually a reverse correlation that goes on in that those who have Lost their jobs most recently are the ones to get another job more quickly because employers have a hesitancy to hire somebody who hasn't been working for a long time. I mean, they've shown it statistically. Our world has been shaken. So, where do you turn? When I'm facing a tough situation, when I'm uncertain as to what I should do, how I should respond, there's a place that I go to in my Bible. It's Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your paths He'll make your paths. It's an interesting way to think of it. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So, I read that passage and I meditate on it a little bit and I say, okay Lord make my path for me and reveal it to me and open it up, help me, give me that wisdom to know what it is that is going to be the the refreshment for me in this time. I've shared with you more than once over the past nine weeks, and that's how long we're this is our 10th Sunday of looking at, at John. But John wants us to know that there are things that we can be certain about. In fact, John declares that his purpose in writing this first letter is so that those who believe can also know. That's that's the meaning behind chapter 5, verse 13. That is, to be a Christian, in the language of John, is to know that we've been born of God. It's to know God. It's to live in Him. Abide in Him. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. It's to enjoy that intimate, personal communion with Him, which is eternal life. Now, I don't think I should have to tell you that there are a lot of people who know a lot about God, but they don't know Him. Do you know that if you go to the average university across the United States of America you will find more atheists teaching in the philosophy and religion department than you will in the hard sciences areas. That's that's just unbelievable to me. You would think it'd be the opposite, but it's not. We can know. In fact, John's argument is actually double-edged. Yes, he seeks to bring believers to the knowledge that they can have eternal life, but he's equally at pains to show that unbelievers have not received life. His purpose is not only to confirm the right assurance of the genuine believer, but also to destroy the false assurance of the counterfeit. One of the things that I had to do two weeks ago, was say to a person, what you are saying to me is not biblically accurate. You can't rest on that assurance. That's not what the Bible says. And that wasn't, that wasn't easy to do. Because I watched, Kay watched, somebody come in all bubbly and excited and leave with their head down. And come back another time, but the second time teary-eyed, saying, You are right. Sometimes we need just as much to make sure people don't have a false understanding as we do to try to help them understand what the right understanding is. And there is such a thing as true Christian assurance. It's not arrogance. It's not presumptuousness. It's simply the revealed will of God, according to John right here in chapter 5, verse 13, that we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. And so John urges his readers, and he urges you and I, to examine, examine yourselves. And he supplies these tests that we've been looking at. And what I've shared with you, I have to be on top of the table. Uh, I have been influenced very much. In fact, I would probably say convinced by the the evidence and support and the writing of John Stott. Uh, And then I found out by searching down uh, a footnote that he was probably actually influenced heavily by a man by the name of Robert Law who wrote a book back in 1885 called The Tests of Life. uh, Republished again in 1909 and again recently in 1968. That's how good it is. And Law chose that title because he believed, he saw in John's writing what he called the three cardinal tests by which you and I may judge whether or not we possess eternal life him it was first doctrinal or theological what we believe uh, and that is that Jesus is the son of God the Messiah the Christ come in the flesh the second he referred to as the moral just as we have been doing whether or not we are practicing righteousness and keeping the commandments of God and this is the one that I had to deal with two weeks ago don't say you know God if you're not keeping his commandments. And the third test was the social test, whether or not we love one another. Since God is love, and all love comes from God, it's a clear, it should be clear that a loveless person doesn't even know God. Now, two weeks ago, I shared with you how John was beginning to For the second time, revisit to cycle through these three tests uh, for determining our genuine belief. And on that Sunday, I shared how the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is not just a revelation of love to be admired. We talked about it this morning as we were getting ready to partake, that great love gift that we were given. But it's not just something to be admired, it's an example for you and I to obey. We should be living what current writers are talking about in terms of a cruciform life. A life shaped by, formed by the cross. If we're not doing that, then if we're not laying down our lives for others, our profession to love them is just an empty boast. And I shared how love at its course is about self-sacrifice, about self-substitution. And in our case, it's a blessing for us to know and to bestow that kind of love upon those who are completely and totally unworthy. And so, whether or not we're a genuine Christian is found in love in action. His words in verse 18 were... Don't love just in word. Love in deed and truth. And I shared more than once how we recognize true love in that self-sacrifice is the essence of love. And love then becomes the evidence of, of eternal life and abundant life. In fact, the University of Texas did a study years ago. And they found that families that met together for devotions and prayer on a regular basis had less sickness and had overall a happier at view of life. And it was done without the knowledge that they were seeking out anything of a religious nature, a secular university doing the test. Now, last Sunday, we revisited the second test. And I assured you that one thing that we can know with certainty is that there will be times when our hearts condemn us. Sometimes, it'll be justly so. Sometimes, we will be guilty and we need our conscience, our heart to say, man, man, you're wrong. But other times... We'll be doing something wrong and our our heart won't condemn us. That's just as wrong. Or we'll be doing something right and our heart will falsely condemn us. So if we're we're at any desire at all to set our hearts at rest when they do accuse us and condemn us, we need to be looking. We need to be looking for the evidence of the Spirit's working in our life. And particularly whether or not He is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commands, and to love our brothers. For the condition of Christ dwelling in us and our dwelling in Him is this comprehensive obedience. The evidence of the indwelling of gift of the Holy Spirit and a mere sense of duty will not generate that kind of obedience to Christ. I had somebody say to me just recently, you know, I try to read the Bible every day, but if I in any way, shape, or form have the thought in my mind when I'm going to get my Bible I have to do this then I set it down and I wait until later when I can feel more comfortable with hey I want to go back and do my Bible reading a sense of duty is not going to generate the obedience we need to Jesus Christ only love for him can do that And the moral test of our authenticity as Christians has to do with obedience. 1 John 3.24 Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So this morning, we move on to revisit the third test. And I titled my sermon this morning Testing the Spirits Utilizing the opening words of our text. Which Our text is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. By the way, in his commentary, John Stott has labeled this paragraph or these verses an elaboration of the doctrinal test. So let's see what he has to say. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You're from God, and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They're from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word this morning. It's virtually impossible, I think, to read this text without recognizing right up front the command that John is issuing. The background of these verses is a situation in which prophecy was prevalent. There were some that had been identified as sapiential, or wisdom, wise men, prophets, belonging to various sectarian groups at that time, the Essenes, the Pharisees, probably even a cluster uh, that were surrounding Philo, uh, and, and the author of a book known as Wisdom. For prophecy was still a live possibility. And it occurred as and when wisdom inspired people. There were also popular prophets, prophets who emerged from or appealed to the ordinary people of Palestine without benefit of office, no scribal learning. They're described, by the way, in the Jewish historian Josephus in various places. Such as when he uses that term prophet to describe revolutionary leaders in his day such as Thutis the Egyptian and the prophet who toward the end of the siege in 70 AD persuaded 6,000 Jews to stay in a portico of the temple hoping in vain for the signs of salvation. But he was a false prophet. So do you know what happened to those 6,000 Jews? They died. In the book of Acts, there is Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 who was believed to have quote, powers from God. He was believed to be a prophet. And on the good side... There was Agabus. Remember Agabus mentioned in Acts 11.27 where it says now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then Luke says, and that famine took place in the days of Claudius. Agabus is also mentioned again in Acts 21 where he prophesies about Paul's arrest in Jerusalem at the hand of the Jews. In our text before us today, John uses a plural, a present, an active tense of the command form, the imperative form. You all, you plural, do not believe every spirit. Now that suggests to me That John's readers were tending to already accept uncritically all the teaching which claimed to be inspired. So, John once again commands them to investigate, to test the source of every claim to uttered or to inspired utterance. Was it from God? Or were the speakers false prophets? Now, this need for testing for critical assessment of religious teachers has always been necessary and remains necessary today. I want you, every Sunday, I want you to leave and go home and go back through your notes and go back through what I said. Search the Scriptures to make sure that what we are saying is what God's Word is revealing. Believing every spirit connotes gullibility. Surely you realize that not everyone claiming to speak in the name of God actually does so. Our televisions have programs on almost every week that are purported to be by some expert and yet claim all sorts of bogus teaching. Do they have credentials? Of course they do. They have their PhDs, their positions of authority. In fact, not all that long ago, there was a documentary. A documentary. We tend to think, oh wow, if it's a documentary, this must be real. And the documentary was speaking of the supposed marriage of Jesus to Mary Magdalene. And a child that he was supposed to have fathered. Now, what was their evidence? Their evidence was what was called the lost gospel. But it was neither lost nor was it a gospel. It's actually a 6th century Gnostic manuscript and they were giving that 6th century manuscript a new interpretation by the way, was there motive? Well, the guy doing the documentary was a Israeli, a Jew. It was a new interpretation of what Jewish people had always explored and called the story of Joseph and Aseneth their understanding or recounting of the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, and his marriage to an Egyptian woman. And it's a document translated from the ancient language of Syriac, claiming to have special hidden information. Now listen to me. Not a single document, Christian or secular, dated up to the year 400, refers to a purported wife of Jesus at all. Not a single church father mentions anything about this in any of their writings, dating all the way back to the first century, the late 90s and early 100s. But all of a sudden, a document dating in the 500s claims to have evidence. Now, why? Because this is heresy. Are you hearing me? It's heresy being given authenticity and authority by means of media. To subterfuge, to undermine the beliefs of Christians. The test given by Jesus for determining a true or false prophet was a moral test. By their fruit, he said, you will recognize them. These modern prophets, these people coming up with these documentaries, are they living the life of a true prophet? Or uh, is there some financial gain involved with coming out with a new book and a documentary? Don't think for a second that those two people didn't profit greatly from that documentary and the book that they put out. In chapter 3, verse 23 of 1 John, John linked under a divine command the duty to love one another, which had been his main theme during the latter part of that chapter, with the duty to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And now he takes up And further develops the central theme of Christian belief as a searching test of the true Christian and the true prophet. This is how he says in verse 2, you can recognize those who are true. This is how we recognize them, he says in verse 6, as he ends that paragraph. And then he goes on to make the character of the audience an almost equally revealing test. So what is there about the content of the teaching that makes such a decisive test? The last verse of chapter 3 emphasized the fact that we know that God abides with us because He's given us His Spirit. But there's other spirits in the world. I was at a party one time when I was young and some of them pulled out a Ouija board and the Ouija board gave the right answer Spirit of God I don't think so the spirit of the devil at work trying to show that there are powers that you and I can have as Christians that God doesn't want us to have. Isn't that the temptation that was in the garden with Adam and Eve? Don't think for a minute that there aren't spirits and demons working in this world. Somebody asked me one time, do you believe in ghosts? I said, no, but I believe in demons. And I believe that demons can show themselves as ghosts and can come up with the voice of someone of years past to deceive, but I don't think it's anything of God. Because the only point at which in the Bible there is a mention of somebody making contact with those who are already dead... the The ones who were already dead wanted to know why they were being bothered, and there was fear on the part of the person when that didn did appear. It was a negative picture, not a positive one. I heard just yesterday again and and I want to be sympathetic, I want to be supportive. But it was a statement about how happy Grandpa would be looking down from heaven on this young girl who had had an opportunity to say the closing prayer for their Christmas program. If my dad is looking down from heaven on what is going on on this planet, he is not enjoying heaven. He's not focusing on where we're supposed to focus when we're in heaven. On God. And glorifying God. John says... We believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us in chapter 3. And that's followed by the prohibition, do not believe every spirit, in much the same way as the command to love our brothers and sisters back in chapter 2 was followed by the prohibition, do not love the world or anything in it. Neither as believers nor, As Christians, nor as lovers, as we are to be loving others as Christians, are we to be indiscriminate. The Christian faith is not to be mistaken for naivety or gullibility. And behind every prophet, or so-called prophet, is a spirit and behind every spirit is either God or the devil. And before we can trust any spirits, we need to test them as to their origin. That's what matters. Paul says basically the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. How do I test The Spirit and what the Spirit is saying? Right here. If what that person tells me they learned from the Spirit of God is not confirmed by this book, they are not telling me something they heard from God. They're telling me something they heard from a deceiver. The reason for this need to test the Spirit is given by John. Because there is such a thing as misguided tolerance of false doctrine. And it's important that we don't find ourselves there. We need to be careful and be aware. So, let me go here before I go on. We need to be claiming that Jesus is in fact both God and man. My nephew and I have been discussing this lately. Remember that book that came out and all the stuff that went with it? The Da Vinci Code by Brown? I can show you in his book what I know to be false statements, and I know he knew better. Lies. Why would he lie in a published book? Because in order to make his thesis work, he needed those church conferences, those early church councils, to be supporting what he was trying to say. The early church councils were not about believing that Jesus was in fact divine. They weren't about trying to understand or believe that Jesus was human. They were about how do we understand Jesus as being both divine and human at the same time. So if you say, well... They were just trying to figure out a way to make this human person divine. That's bogus. That's a lie. Go back and read the literature, documents produced by the councils themselves. (coughs) And he says, John says, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Which John's readers, he says, had heard was coming. Now I guarantee you there's probably not a woman or man in this room or with us today online that hasn't heard somebody say, well, you know, the Antichrist is going to come and it's going to be the end of time. Not what the Bible says. In fact, John doesn't even use the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And right here in 1 John, he says very specifically that it's not a sign of the end of time, the last day, the judgment. Chapter 2, verse 18 and 22. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Is that future? Or is that past tense? Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Not now, not today, 2021. He's talking about when he was writing in the first century. This is the last hour. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus Christ? This is the Antichrist. And when you compare chapter 2 and chapter 4, in both cases, that confession is important. In the first case, chapter 2, it's about whether or not we possess the Father or not. Chapter 4, it has to do with whether or not we are inspired by the Spirit or not. But in both cases, the emphasis, what is central, is Jesus Christ. So finally, in verses 4 to 6, he turns to a consideration of the teachers and their message. Including the audience. Notice in verse 4, if you have it in front of you, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, he begins with an emphatic personal pronoun. You, referring to his Christian readers. Verse 5, they... Referring to the false teachers. Verse 6, we. Referring to himself and the congregation as representatives of what is the true authoritative teaching. You are from God, he says. And you have overcome. That's a part of your character. The false teachers have not succeeded in deceiving you. Not only have you tested them and found them wanting, but you've conquered them. You've conquered them decisively by repudiating their teaching. You haven't succumbed to their flatteries or or believed their lies. And that's why in chapter 2 he says, that's why they found themselves obliged to leave. And the cause of the victory... He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, listen. I know that there are many people who use this verse as a reference to God. But look at the context. It is a reference to God, but not God the Father. Not God the Son. It's a reference to God the Holy Spirit. It's a comparison of true and false spirits. He's speaking about the spirit of truth that's in you. Then the anointing which remains in you. Back to chapter 2. While the one who is in the world is the devil, the spirit of falsehood. And although it's implied that the evil spirit is great, the Holy Spirit is greater. And so in verses 5 to 6, we're given a complementary teaching where John contrasts once again in striking fashion not only the false prophets and the true prophets, but the different audiences who listen to them, namely the world and whoever knows God. Now, no private believer could ever presume to say, Whoever knows God agrees with me. Only those who are not from God disagree with me. But you know what? I heard a minister one time say, if you don't agree with me, it's because you don't have the Spirit of God in you. You'll never hear me say that. If you don't agree with me, it might be, one, because you don't understand exactly what I'm saying. We might have a problem with communication. Or guess what? It might be that I'm wrong. And I need your feedback. I need you to say, what about this verse? Or or this verse? Because... When we interpret and look at scripture, we need to be doing it as a community and we need to be doing it humbly, realizing that we just not might not be right about everything. And actually what John is saying is, hey, if you're truly studying God's Word and you're believing God's Word, there should be a resemblance, an affinity between you and the Word of God. So by way of conclusion, this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. That's how John ends. How? He says we can test the spirits. We can get to know Present tense. Which is which? By examining both the message they proclaim and the character of their life and the character of the lives of the people who are listening to them. In stark contrast to what he has just written about the false teachers who had left them, John now uses the first person plural and finishes by saying in much the same way that the section began, this is how we can recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. The whole section is concerned with testing the spirits, knowing, seeking out so that we can have some confidence. Because you know what? Regardless of what many people proclaim today, truth is not a consensus of opinion. The majority can certainly be wrong. How many of you? You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you at one point, who are those of you that are parents, had one of your kids say, but dad... Everybody's doing it. And you said, I know one person that's not doing it. Or better not be doing it. <laughs> the majority is not always right. In fact, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. My belief about what's going on in this world is that the majority is usually wrong. And the so-called tolerance of the world today is simply an intolerance from the other perspective. It's not a tolerance that says You and I disagree, and I think you're wrong, and you think I'm wrong, but that's okay, we'll still treat each other as people, as humans. That is true tolerance. The tolerance that this world wants you to accept is the tolerance that says, oh, that's okay, you can live that way if you want. Everybody's got a right to be happy. But that is Satan's form of tolerance. The truth is not a consensus of the majority. Let's pray.